0: Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful evening, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and just to worship you as we study your word, guide and lead us to understand what you would want us to see, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're starting the book of 1 Samuel, and as usual, we'll give you a little bit of the history and and all of that. The author of the book is unknown. (laughs) It's not Samuel, because Samuel dies about a third of the way through the book, so it's not... Is not him. Uh, there are some that believe that Ezra wrote it, uh, but we really don't know who, who the author is. Um, one of the basic themes of the book, other than the history of the people that it's talking about, is prayer. We're going to see a lot of prayers being answered, a lot of prayers being made. So it, uh, prayer is a major theme of the book. Uh, it is a history book about a story about three individuals. First of which is Samuel, the last judge of Israel. And then we have Saul, the first king of Israel, and then we have David who spends this book running from Saul. <laughs> uh in 2nd Samuel, he, it's it's about about uh, David. Well, we just did 2nd Samuel and our class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good uh, good good statement on it. Um, Let's see, it covers the period of the end of the judges to the first kings, and um, all the problems of that transition from God being their ruler with the judges to kings. Um, Let's see, chapter one is the birth of Samuel. Chapter 2 is Eli's failures. Eli is going to be the priest of the time when when the book starts. Uh, Chapter 3 is Samuel's call. Chapter 4 through 6 is the Ark of the Covenant is captured and spends time in Philistia. Uh, Chapter 7, Philistines are defeated. Chapter 8 will be their desire for a king. (laughs) Uh, 9 and 10 will be the king is chosen. 11, Saul's first battle. 12 is Samuel warns them of what a king is going to cost them. And he makes it very clear that the king is not this great thing that they think it is. They want to be like everybody else. And he says, you know, he gives them the warning of what a king does. And he says, first off, the king is going to take 10% of everything you have, which is the equivalent of a tithe. So basically, he's saying the king will take everything that belongs to God. And that's exactly what happens when the kings come along. We see uh, uh, chapter 13, Saul's self-will. 14, Jonathan wins a battle. Uh, Chapter 15, Saul's disobedience, which leads to him losing the kingdom. Uh, Chapter 16, we get introduced to David and his anointing to be king. 17 is his battle with Goliath, which everybody knows. (laughs) Uh, Chapter 18 will be Paul's, excuse me, not Paul. Saul, uh, David and Jonathan's friendship. Uh, the last half of 18 will be Saul perse- starts persecuting David and that'll go all the way through chapter 26, 27. And then 27 through the end of the book, 31 is the last years of Saul. So we see this intermixing of these three major characters. Uh, we see this idea here that uh, of prayer. We see many issues being introduced, polygamy, uh, parental failure, both in Eli, Samuel, <laughs> uh, Saul, and we see the foundation for David. You know, see a lot of parental failure, of uh, fathers not being good <laughs> with their children, and the results that that in, uh, brings in. Uh, putting their trust in the sacred things, that's how the, Ark gets taken into Philistia. They decide that if the Ark of the Covenant is with them, they can't lose a battle. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant in a battle, they lose the battle, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken into Philistia. And there's a lot of fun stories as it goes around Philistia and causes all kinds of problems with people. So it's kind of an interesting uh, segue. Uh, let's see, impartiality, Self-seeking. There's a number number of spiritual lessons we're going to learn from all of this, so we're going to get started on this uh, and move forward. First Samuel chapter one, starting at verse one. Now there was a certain man of Ramoth uh, im Zophim, of the mount of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an (laughs) Ephiamite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penea. And Penea had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went out of the city yearly to worship and sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Paniah, his wife, and to her sons and her daughters, portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year when she went, up into the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weep you, and why eat you not, and why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So we're going to stop there because there's quite a bit in this, in this section. Uh, so it starts out with, there was a man of Ramath Ahim Zophim. of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, and then the long list of who he was the son of. Uh, This is kind of an interesting thing when you look at this, because the name of their town is Double Height of the Watcher, so apparently it was on some kind of hill hill that was a watchtower. But we look at this, and Elkanah means God has possessed. He has a really good name, and he seems to be a righteous man, because we're gonna see, he goes to worship God every year. Now, which of, the, which of the three feasts he went to, we don't know. If he was totally righteous, he would have been there three times a year. But he's going once a year at least. So we're seeing a righteous man. And if he went at Passover, that would cover two of his trips anyway, because you go from Passover to First Fruits and, and, st- and spend some time. So he goes and he's, he's a man who worships. And the name of his father is Zeroham, which means... Um, I can't read my own writing shows praise Uh, so his father's name is his his name is God is possessed his father's name is shows praise and then his grandfather's name is Elihu which means he is my God and I'm going to get when we get done with this I want to show you something that this one does and this happens a lot when they give names on here, and he's the son of Tohu, which means lovely, the son of Zoph, which means honeycomb, and an Ephraite, Efer, which means fruitfulness. And this one actually makes a pretty decent sentence when you go in. God is God is possessed, showing praise. He is my God, lowly honey, honeycombed in faithfulness. So this is quite an interesting statement of this list of names that were going in and I don't know if it's consequential or uh, consequential or on purpose or just a consequence but I just thought it was interesting when I was reading this and I looked on the edge of my Bible and here is you know somebody who is says is possessed and he shows his praise and that it's his God and uh, then he's lowly and honeycombed with faithfulness so it's kind of an interesting statement there And but we see here a righteous man, but it says he has two wives. And people will point to the Bible and see, see, the Bible is all for polygamy. Well, the only problem is every time you see polygamy in the Bible, you see problems. (laughs) All right, going way back to the first polygamist in Genesis, and it says he had two wives and they caused him problems. And every time we see more than one wife, we see problems. Uh, Abraham is going to have problems because he takes Sarah and he takes the Ethiopian woman and ends up with problems. We see Jacob with what ends up being four wives, two wives and and two concubines which basically are wives and he ends up with all kinds of problems and troubles. Uh, We see the epitome of polygamy in Solomon with a a thousand women but he he ends up being taken away from God and, and going into you know, problems because of the wives uh, leading him. We see David, who has multiple wives, and he ends up with problems. So, we want to be careful. Just because the Bible says something happened, does not mean that the Bible approves of what's happening. And we want to be careful with this because a lot of times people go, "Well, see, it was in the Bible, so it's got to be okay." Well, look at look at what happens because of some of those things you want to say are they're okay? And you know, In this case, we're gonna see problems, and it gives us a little picture of the strife that's going on. And this is one where El- Elkanah loves Hannah, and doesn't really, it doesn't say he doesn't love uh, Pinnah, but it indicates that the one he really loves is Hannah. Now, did he get married to this other one because Hannah never had children for a long time, or was there some other thing going there? We don't know. It was not uncommon for polygamy in those in that particular period. And there's nothing there telling us why he has two wives. All right? But it does say there's one he loves. And doesn't really say that the other one is not loved, but it also doesn't say that she's loved. But she has given him children, which is a big, big deal to, in, to them. And uh, it says, Hannah. And you know, Hannah's name means grace. And the other girl's name is Peninnah, which means jewel. And she is not a jewel. She, may, she might have beauty, <laughs> but her character is not that of some of a jewel for him. And it says that Peninna had children, and Hannah had no children. And this is gonna be a big deal. In that day, if you, did not have, if you were a wife and did not have children, you were looked at as if something was wrong with you. Spiritually, not just physically. You were looked at, you must be a terrible sinner that God hasn't blessed you with children. And yet we see so many righteous women that have trouble giving birth to their first child. We see Sarah, who doesn't have birth, give birth until, you know, I can't remember how old she was, but 90 or something like that, 80. You know, she's 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 you know when she when the angel says she's going to give birth, she goes, well, it's impossible because I'm past I'm basically was saying I'm past menopause. I'm I'm not even having periods anymore. I'm past the time of women is what it says in there. Uh, so she says well, I'm not even having periods anymore. There's no way I can have a child. And God says I can I can restore and gets her you know gets her where she can physically have a child. Sarah. That was Sarah. Uh, you know, we see that in, in Elizabeth when John the Baptist is born, you know, getting to the place where she says, you know, in her case it doesn't say she's that old, but shes they're losing hope. She's getting real close to that age. We see all these people in the scripture that God uses in a great way, and yet the reputation and the custom was if you didn't have a child by a certain time, then there was something wrong with you. You had done something to make God mad at you. And in this case we have the story where God is going to do something great and in the birth of um, samuel this three says and the man went up to the city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the lord of Hosts in shiloh and remember we said that when they in in the time of the judges they set up the tabernacle in shiloh and it's going to remain in shiloh until david moves it to jerusalem to, to be worshipped there. And so he goes up every year, and again, we don't, it doesn't tell us which of the feasts that he's going up there, he's righteous enough to go every year to Shiloh, and worship. And you know, think about this, in the Jewish law, every male was to go three times a year to the, ta- uh, to the, ta- to the tabernacle and later the temple to worship. Now, it could be that he went three times a year, but he took his family one time a year. And that's a possibility as well, because the women were not commanded to go to these annual feasts. The men were commanded to go. That doesn't mean the women did not go. It just means that the men were told, you are going, and the women may or may not go. And you had got to think about this. This was a day when it was a big deal to make a trip. And many of these people, especially from, from any distance, to go to worship God for these big events might have been something that would keep you away from home for a month. And we think about when Moses, Moses yeah, I'm having real names. Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem for where Jesus was born, so they could be taxed. They came on a place that was 300 miles away. So they made a 10 or 15 day trip just to get to Bethlehem. Another 10 or 15 days to get back, if they had gone straight back, you're gone for a month. So, you know, we, we, kind, of, we kind of think, and especially in our day, you know, well, it was no big deal to make those kind of trips. You know, I come out here to chloride you know, four or five times a week, you know it's a 60-mile round trip. Yeah. Back in just 100 years ago, 80, or 100 years ago, to come from Kingman to chloride was a big deal. You didn't come to come that far and go back the same day. Uh, even with the train schedule, it was like a three-hour trip. And I can't imagine taking that long but the, with the train, but it was I had the schedule. It's a three-hour trip. You, know, you might be able to leave early, get here, do some business, and go back home the same day when the train was running in the, in the late 1800s and 1900s. But it was still a big deal, and we just go, yeah, I'll just jump in the car. I'll be be there in a half hour. I can be back. You know, it's not that big a deal. These trips, and they talk about them, are a big deal. I mean, when you're walking, you're lucky to get 10 to 20 miles a day when you have to set up set up your tent, break down your tent, and so we have a. This is a huge deal for him to make this trip, and uh, just trying to reemphasize that with us because we kind of forget in our day, these trips were not something simple. They they were they were an ordeal. They took they took time. Um, imagine on back in the days if you were on horseback, you were, you know coming out here from Kingman would still be about a two-day trip. You didn't you didn't push your horse. The horses were too expensive to to push too hard you know, definitely be a full day just to get here, and that's 25 miles, and I don't know that you'd push your horse that far. Uh, because of the, you know, because they, again, they were very expensive, you know, animals, and I don't know what the distance was, but it would still be a full day or two to get here. You know, you know we see some of the cowboy shows where they talk about these guys, you know, going to the next town over, which, and, and then they'd spend the night there and come back home the next next day, and you're you're talking, well, gee, it was only, 15, 20 miles, and, but you know, I'm just trying to make the point, this was a big deal for them. This trip was not something they just did on a spur of a moment. I think we'll go over to the city today. <laughs> you know, uh, we'll go out for dinner. And it says, and, he had, and the two sons of Eli, who is the priest, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And we're gonna find out later on, these guys have very bad reputations. Uh, then their reputation is not much better than Samuel's son's reputations are going to be later on but hopefully you know means pugilist <laughs> a boxer fighter pugilist and Phineas means mouth of brass <laughs> uh, Now, what names these guys have you know you're calling your one son fighter and the other one Mouth of brass, which could either mean that you know, probably means judgment because brass signifies judgment. So he's very judgmental. You know, very very good names for his kids, and we'll find out that they fit they fit their names pretty pretty solidly. But you know, it's kind of fun sometimes to look at these names, especially for the, in the day that these names were given. They prayed about these names, and they gave them names, and the names usually matched the character of the person whose name was given it. Um, we look at Hannah, and her name means grace, and we're going to see her being so gracious all the way through this. Um, the other girl's name means jewel, and I don't see that it fit her, not, 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 at least not emotionally and active. But if you think of like a diamond, jewel, it's hard. This is true. Very hard, very yeah, They're you know, usually very hard. pretty when it's cut. <laughs> I'm imagining that she was a very pretty woman and and the name probably fit her external beauty. We're gonna find out she wasn't a very nice person at all. And she was not a jewel in her personality. And so we look at that. And verse four, and when it came time that Elkanah offered, he gave Peninnah his wife and to her sons and daughters portions. So we see here that Peninnah has at least four kids. How do we see that? Because sons is plural, and daughters are plural, so there's at least four children. Uh, and poor Hannah has zero children. So this is gonna be a pretty big deal, but when they go out there, Elkanah gives portions to uh, Peninnah and her children, and He says in verse five, but to Hannah he gave a worthy portion for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut her womb. Is that portions for them to sacrifice for themselves? It doesn't really indicate. Uh, It could be, or it could just be feeding, here's your food for the trip. Uh, It doesn't really indicate on that because usually the women did not go into the tabernacle to make offerings, even though we're gonna see Hannah's going to go make an offering. Uh, So it could be either way. There's not a real indication on what they were going to do with these portions. And it says that she has a worthy or a large, uh, some of the newer versions translated as double portion. She got twice as much as as the others, but that is really not what this word means. It really just means large. Uh, significant, and it could be more than double. It could be, you know, just a lot more than you know than Penu uh, Penuana Pino- got. Uh, but it says here clearly, for he loved Hannah, and we see the same thing that that uh, J- uh, Jacob has with his love for Rachel. And yet, Leah is the one that has all the children. She ends up giving him half of all of his children, and, or more than half of all of his children, where the other one's the one he loves, <laughs> gives him two. But you know, he also, very interestingly, as you go on in, in the book of Genesis, the one he's buried with is Leah. And he buries Rachel outside of, outside of another city. So what we see as we read that story that Leah... Had some inner beauty. She was spiritually pretty. Where Rachel was always sniffing at him and, and saying things that were not very nice. So I I think he I think that Jacob fell in love with Leah by the end of their life, saying, "I like this. You know, may not have liked her beauty, but she is a beautiful person to live with." Whereas Rachel was more the beauty he fell in love with, and going, "Well, you know, she's not quite what I thought she was." Because uh, you read in there, and you know one time she's accusing him of not, not giving her children on purpose. And his answer was, "Who am I God that I'm keeping you from, from having a child?" And that was kind of little things that she would you know s- s- snipe at him over. So there's lots of issues with that. And here we see the same kind of thing, the, the rival, the rivalry between the two wives. And verse six, and her adversary. Also provoked her sore to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb and literally adversary on here means rival wife the very specific word the the rival wife for her husband's attentions provoked her and literally means to try to make angry which is exactly what that word means and then to vo- provoke her sore and that means to anger you know she was you know what they were saying here is that she was trying to make her angry. get her to say, do act, not enjoy the worship of God. How many times does Satan do that to us as individuals? You're getting ready to go to church, you're getting ready to go to Bible study, and inevitably something happens to get you upset. the The husband and wife will have an argument, you'll end up with a flat tire, you'll get behind you know an accident or something, and you'll be delayed. you won't be there as early as as you want to. If you have a little child, the little child decides to mess their mess their clothes up either by you know using the right bathroom in it or just messing them up, and all of a sudden you have to stop everything, re-clean the kid, and go to church, and all of a sudden you're not in a good mood. Satan does this kind of stuff all the time. When it's time to worship, he likes to try to make things a problem. And here, was this problem. We're getting ready to go worship and let me make you angry. (laughs) You uh, you can see that Peninnah was not a very nice woman. And it says, and to make her fret. And this literally means to tremble. And apparently Hannah would fall for it and would get so angry that she'd be literally shaking. And this was being done, at least from somebody's perspective, on purpose. Yeah, and I may may have been on purpose, it may have just been her teasing, not necessarily on purpose. Uh, I always get concerned when somebody says something's being done on purpose because you don't know why that person's doing what they're doing in most cases. And I can remember fights with my brother, you know, at times when I would swear that he was doing it on purpose. I'm sure he was just being him, but uh, not necessarily doing things on purpose to make me mad, but he was just being himself. And this may have been, the case here. Uh, And we need to be very careful that we don't put motive behind things that are happening to us. Because usually our understanding of the motive is not correct. Because remember, we've talked about this, when the spies came back from spying out the Promised Land, 10 of the spies came back and they said, there are giants in the land, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes, and up to that point, they would have had a good report. OK, there's big giants in here, and we look really small compared to them. But they added one more statement that was not true. And they see us as such. They had no ideas how the giants in the land saw them. They didn't walk up to the giants and say, oh, by the way, you know, tell, me why, tell me what you think about us Israelites. That's why it's a dangerous project. Yes, because you've project your fears your your attitudes your your way of thinking onto other people and it's a very dangerous thing because we find out later when rahab tells them you know we're shaking in our boots we're all afraid of you guys because of what the lord did to egypt and what he's been doing to all these other people and i'm sure that it was the same testimony 40 years earlier when they had just come out of Israel, uh, egypt and had everything being destroyed in egypt that those people were shaking in their boots they were they were afraid of them because Egypt was the mighty nation at that time. So, we need to be very careful to not project why somebody's doing something. Because I've dealt with many issues sometimes, and when you get both parties together, you find out this person's projection on them had nothing to do. They, they either didn't remember it or they remembered it totally different. You know, they had just come from a really bad fight with their with their neighbor, and then they. And you came and they, were, they gave you a look that made you mad and you could have swore they were mad at you. And they weren't mad at you. They were, still, they were still upset with their neighbor. You just happened to be the one that they weren't ready to talk to yet. So we need to be very careful to not put motive, project motive, unless somebody literally says, well, you know, I, I hate you and I want to make sure your life is miserable, they may not be doing it on purpose. And we have to take this at its word that she was doing it on purpose. I don't know if she was or not. She is the rival wife. She may be just trying to make her miserable so that she's not ready to to go to bed with Elkanah. You know, say, "Well, if I get her mad enough, she'll be she won't be in the mood, and he'll come into me, and I'll get another child out of the deal." And so it could be something just that simple in her mind. But that's not the way it's written down in here. She's on purpose trying to make her mad, and we have to accept that for what it says. <laughs> And uh, and then it says the Lord had shut her womb for whatever reason to make a mighty message that He's getting ready to make. You know, we've always got to remember the most important thing. We cover this so often is God is good all the time, and He always has a reason for what He's doing. Okay, if He hadn't shut Hannah's womb, then there wouldn't have been the prayer for for a child and and. Uh, Samuel would not have been born to be given to God because she was so happy to have her child. So God shut her womb so that she would be able to pray, have this child that she was willing to give back to God, and then he does great things. So we see the reason here as we get further in the story that God did all this. Now, does she understand it where she's at? Nope, all she knows is I can't have a baby. And I don't understand it. I come here, I worship God, I give in my sacrifices, I've been praying, I'm trying to be a good wife, I wanna be a good mother, and God just won't let me have a child. How often do we get wrapped up in this kind of stuff? God, you're not doing what I think you should be doing when I think you should be doing it. And God says, I will do it all in the right time. And we just need to learn to rest. And I understand the hardest thing to do is rest sometimes. God, I really want to do, you know, fill in the blank on what you really want to do for God. And God says, just wait, be patient. We'll make it happen. You'll see it. And Hannah's like, God, I want this child. I'm not getting any younger, God. I want my child. Uh, and Penelope Pine- is really trying to struggle to make her feel worthless and saying, well, eventually, you know, uh, eventually he's going to love me more than you because I'm giving him the kids. And if you remember, that was Leah's attitude. One of her children is, he will love me. You know, and she made the statement, because I've given him third or fourth son, I can't remember what it was, he will now love me <laughs> rather than Leah, uh, rather than Rachel. And yet, she never got it during those times of that, that battle. And we don't know when, when his affection finally changed over and, and decided that Leah was going to be bar- yeah, buried with him. And it might have just been a practical. She gave me half the kids and she's going to be with me. But I really do think he fell in love with her because otherwise he'd have made sure the one he loved was buried with him for eternity. Uh, but we see here this whole issue. And she is looking at God. Probably her prayers are God, what have I done? You know, forgive me. You know, uh, I know that I know that Elkanah loves me and he says he loves me. He gives me this great gift every time we come to worship. You know, what have I done to not to deserve not having a kid or what has she done to, to deserve? And You could hear her saying that kind of stuff. Well, you know, look how special I am. I, God really loves me. I've got, you know, I've got all these kids. <laughs> what, what, what are you? And she probably picked, you know, she probably did pick things out that Hannah had done. Well, you know, if you hadn't got mad at him on this occasion when he forgot your birthday, you know, you'd have these kids, <laughs> you know, and I'm kind of picking something out, you know, but I can picture her as doing these little things. You know, if you hadn't burnt his dinner that one night, you know, you, you, you'd be having all these kids. You know, I mean, who knows what her accusations were, but you we can pic- picture these. These little things she'd be picking out and saying, you know, see, this is why, you know, you did this, you did that, uh, and trying to make her mad, trying to get her upset, and that's what it says, that she was doing it on purpose, trying to provoke her. And we see this. And verse 7 says, And he did this every year. And she went to the house of the Lord. And so she provoked her. And therefore she wept and did not eat. So can you imagine? We talked about these trips. Days out on the road. At home they would have been able to be separated more. You know, Hannah could have gone to town or whatever. You got them about her business. Doing her, doing her things in her tents. But here they're on the road. Side by side Campbells <laughs> or walking or whatever it is, you know, just nitpicking her the whole trip long. One or two tents being set up instead of the entire complex of tents or rooms in the house when she's back home. So this is a chance that she's getting just nitpicked the whole way, no matter how many days it was, and, we don't, and I didn't calculate how far the, the place is from Shiloh but, he, but even if it's only a day or two's trip, it's still a big deal. And she's being picked on. And it says she's being picked on so much that she wept and wouldn't eat. Now, I don't know if Pinua was a, an extremely good antagonist, or if Hannah was just so, so tender-hearted and easy, easy, easy to uh, upset. I think she's kind of easy to upset because you look at this List list of things. She's there to, to provoke her. She's getting so mad. She's trembling. Now she's crying. Uh, and either it's either the one was a really good antagonist, which is probably true, and the other one may have just been a little too easy. Uh, you know, how many of us have seen met people who wear their feelings on their sleeves? Uh, somebody just looks at them bad, and they break out into tears and have been have been persecuted. You got another person who. It can be browbeat you know, all day long and let her just roll off there, roll off them without any, without any problems. So where we were on this one, I don't know, but Hannah is, by the end of the day, in tears. And probably was, you know, she told, you know, God's mad at you, because you otherwise you'd have kids, because that was what the culture taught them. Remember when we talked about Job, Job's teaching was that if you'd followed God, you'd be rich. So when he lost everything, his friends, disciples that he'd taught rightfully told him that he deserved, had done something and deserved what he was going through because that was their theology. As long as you obey God, you will be blessed. If you're not blessed, you've been disobedient. So in this case, he's all day long being told, you know, what what did you do? What have you done that's gotten you in so much trouble with God that you won't have a child? and maybe even helping her remember some things, who knows. Uh, but it got to the place where you know she was just totally upset, trembling, mad, upset, couldn't sleep, didn't want to eat, crying. And Elkanah comes along, and he gives her a really great encouragement, You know, uh, comes up to her and says, Hannah, why are you weeping, and why are you why don't you eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better than 10 sons? <laughs> you know, aren't I as good as all these boys, that, all these children that you want? I, I'm sure he's trying to encourage her in his, in his way, but you know, it's not much encouragement in a, in a place and a time that says, if you don't have children, you're not, you're not being blessed by God, you're being cursed by God. Uh, and I'm sure he was trying to be nice to her and say, Well, you know, I love you so much, and I, I should be more important to you than any number of, any number of children. Uh, why he picked 10, I don't know, but, uh, but you know, um, I am sure that uh, Hannah did not take that very well. Uh, there's probably grudgingly, yes, I know you love me, but you know, I want, I want some children. <laughs> And this is the problem sometimes when we look at something that we want, we can be miserable. Uh, we can be very miserable when we look to God and say, God, and even if it's a good thing, God, I just want to do whatever it is, and I'm being prevented to, uh, by, uh, to do it. And we can get so wrapped up in what we don't have sometimes that we forget all the blessings that we do have. Uh, the bulletin we put on the back of the bulletin, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden could eat of any tree that they wanted to eat. How many trees in the garden had fruit in it? I don't know. Let's say it was only 100. I'm sure there were more than 100. But God says this one tree you can't eat. And what do they concentrate? Not the 99 things they could do or more, but the one thing they could not do. How often do we as Christians do the same thing with God? He has a multitude of blessings for us and we concentrate on the handful of things he says, no, you can't do. And if we concentrate on the things we can't do, we are going to be miserable, always. That's our nature. It's our sinful nature to want what we can't have. But, you know, it's so important for us. God, what is it I can do? You know, what is it that you've blessed me that I can do? You know, the, not everybody in the church can be a pastor or a teacher. There's not that many positions and if you had everybody in the church being a pastor or a teacher, there'd be no students. All right, we got, we got 100 people in the church and every one of them's a, every one of them's a teacher. We have 100 classes this Sunday. Okay. Take your pick which one you want to go to. Oh, there's nobody to go to any of the classes. They're all teachers. They're, they're, all, they're all trying to teach. There's, maybe you are a teacher, but it may not be time for you to be a teacher. It may be down the road later on. That you know, making that point of we got to be careful. So often we get wrapped up in what we can't do, and forget all the blessings God's given us. And even in our day, with 613 laws in the Bible, there's still an awful lot we can do. And as Christians, we're not under the burden of the law because the law's been fulfilled. We just have to walk in liberty, and not hurt our brothers by our liberty. So even there. We are free, and we need to be careful that we don't get concentrating on the things we can't, can't do. And here we see Hannah co- totally concentrated. She's got a husband that loves her dearly, who, who wants her to be happy, and all she concentrates on is, I don't have a child. And I'm sure she had a full life other than that, but her whole mindset is, need a child, need a child, need a child, need a child, and if you want to make yourself miserable, Concentrate on what you don't have or what you can't do, and your life will be miserable. And this is one of the reasons I like the, the hymn, Count Your Blessings. We start concentrating on what God's doing for us. It'll give us great faith, it'll give us encouragement, and we start looking and saying, God, you, you're, you do a lot in my life. Let's see what else you're gonna do for me. And he multiplies, and eventually, he might even give you that thing that you think you want. It was the culture too. If you did not have a child as a woman, a married woman then you were looked at as a sinful person somehow uh because it wasn't they didn't look at it as being physical because god could overcome the physical so you had you had to have done something so bad that god was judging you and we take again just as we go back to job when job lost everything he was being accused job just just confess what it is you've done so so God can start blessing for you because obviously, Job, some, you did something really bad for God to take away all your blessings. That was his those were his friends. Those were the actual, most people believe that those were the ones that he had trained. They were, they were a generation below him and he had trained them to, so they were repeating back his words and you we really do see that when in his answers. His answers were always, I know that what you say is true, but, I have not done anything to deserve this kind of punishment. And all of his answers are that, that format. Yes, you're true. Yes, this is true. God was trying to work with Job on multiple cases. He wanted to show Job your theology okay, is wrong. Like- oh, her, the- her theology is wrong. Yeah. It, it's believed by the people that if you don't have a child, there's something wrong with you and you've sinned. And asked- but God is trying to show her, no, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just not the time yet. I've, I've got a plan, and we've got to submit to that plan. And so often, we do the, We walk in this same trap. Uh, many of our trials literally are to say, you believe this in your theology, let me see. You know, Let me show you that that's not true. People who believe that God is a big meanie up in the sky just waiting to hit them over the top of the head if they dare to do anything will be challenged with step out and do something frequently and get over your fear and live, live for God. And they'll get opportunities and many times they'll say, uh-uh, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna get out there where I can get hit by a, a lightning bolt or a hammer, whatever term you wanna think of God using, and they'll be ducked down and so afraid to serve God because they don't trust God. And they will have a lifetime of failed opportunities where they just wouldn't step out that God gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to step out, and if they look back over their life, if they finally get over it and start serving God, they're going, "Wow, I wish I had done this when this opportunity, or when this opportunity, when this opportunity," because so many people are afraid of God. Yeah. And I and I describe it as you know they kind of they kind of see God as playing whack-a-mole with a great big hammer. Every time they stick their head out of the hole, they you know, God hits them over the head with the with the hammer. And unfortunately, I know there's lots of people that have that kind of attitude about God. If I just, if I hunker down, I'll be okay. As soon as I stick my head up, God's waiting to put me back in my place. So I'm just going to stay in my place. Oh, if they just understood God. <laughs> and we need to be careful. What is our understanding of God? God will test it. Sometimes he tests us to prove that we're wrong. Sometimes he tests us so that we see, do we really believe that he's going to bless and both, both areas are going to be tested. And here, the, a lot of this, I think, is Hannah being tested. Are you just going to have faith that I'm going to give you your heart's desire? Because this isn't her heart's desire to have a child. But she has placed her heart's desire above God and the worship of God and, and, and wanting his way. So she's made an idol out of this child in many ways. Made an idol out of the child she doesn't even have yet, because she wants it so bad that she's going, God, you know, this is this is what I want, and I'm not going to be happy until I get this child. And we see this whole issue coming up. Verse nine. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your handmaiden, remember me, and not forget your handmaiden, but will give unto your handmaiden a man child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. All right, so we see first example of prayer here in, a, in, this, in this story. And it's Hannah's prayer. And it says, after she had risen up and they had eaten, and I don't know if she had finally eaten at this point or if it's just the rest of the family that's eaten, they've made it to Shiloh, and they've had their their food and drink. And it says, Eli the priest sat by the post of the temple of the Lord. Now, I don't know why they put temple here, because it's a tabernacle at this time. (laughs) But he's sitting by a post, looking over everything, watching everything. We're gonna find out that Eli is extremely fat. He can barely move, but he sits there and watches over everything. So when he comes and talks to Hannah, there's a, this is a big deal for him to get up and go talk to her. Uh, and she was in bitterness of soul because she's been harassed, and she really wants this child. And she prayed to the Lord and wept. There was one good thing about her, she knew what to do to try to get over this she, she went to pray and this was at a time when almost every time we see prayer in the old testament it's at the tabernacle or the temple it seems like and even to this day the jews have this kind of mentality that you can only pray in the in the tabernacle or the synagogue and the idea of just praying outside of those two is almost foreign to them not completely foreign to them but kind of foreign to them. And if a, Jew is, if a Jew does pray, they will, outside of the tabernacle or the synagogue, they will pray facing the tabernacle or the synagogue. And if we read David's story, he got up three times a day and prayed facing Jerusalem. They would calculate which direction Jerusalem's at and they would pray toward Jerusalem with the idea that I'm looking at the temple. I'm looking at the temple, I'm looking at the tabernacle. And we see even the synagogues and the, and the temples that the Jews build outside of, you know, outside of Jerusalem, everything is built so that it faces Jerusalem. So then when they're worshiping, they're worshiping toward Jerusalem because it's the most important city that they have. And that's where the temple belongs. They're waiting for the temple to be built. So until then, the city itself, is prayed toward. And the Jews have this big problem. They have idols of sacred things. Uh, We see in here that the the Ark of the Covenant is that idol. If it goes into battle, we can't lose. Uh, In a Jewish synagogue, when they get ready to to read the word of God, it's quite a ceremony they do. They go up and unlock or at least open a cabinet in which the Torah sits. And it's a scroll, the one they use for, for teaching, at least in the two that I've seen. It's a great big scroll, and it's covered. And they take it out in great ceremony, and they parade it around, the, around, and everybody's reaching out and touching the Torah, the cloth of it. And they make a big deal. And when I saw the both times I've seen this, it was both very interesting and yet very disturbing. Well, they reached to it. The the Orthodox I saw did and the Reformed did. They didn't actually touch it, but they reached out to it. But it it had this whole picture to me. It's like, okay, they're really lifting up the word of God, but yet the attitude you saw with it was also that this was almost an idol. this This has gone way beyond just just lifting up God's word and I'm not sure how each, because I can just look, tell you how I saw it as a Gentile looking at it without anybody explaining to me what was going on. I knew what it was that they had picked up and I saw what was going on and it, it had it both genuinely what a wonderful thing and at the same time almost a horrifying, you know, this is almost going way too far of worship of this but if you're going to worship God's word, at least it's something worth worshiping. But uh, but we also see this, the whole idea of the temple and and the Jews for before Jerusalem was taken. We're looking at this is God's city. The temple's here. It will never, ever be taken because this is where God dwells. We won't lose it. And even all the way up to the day that they finally lose Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed, there's this attitude of we can't lose. You know, we can't lose. This is Jerusalem. This is God's. God city. He, all these miracles He's done to keep us our, in our city, and they had lifted up the city to that idolatry place. Even though they weren't following God, worshiping God in any way, shape, or form, this is God's city. You know, nothing, nothing will happen to it because this is this is God. God dwells here. You know, granted we put idols of other gods in there, but this is God's city. <laughs> and so we see this whole process going on, and she is in the tabernacle or at the tabernacle, weeping. And it says that she gives this prayer, and this is her, her prayer in the form of a vow. Lord, if you will look at, look at me and remember me and, forget for, and not forget me, and you will give me a man, child, or a boy, a little boy, I'll give him back to you. Now, this is kind of an interesting prayer. God, give me the child I really, really want, the boy that I want, and I will put him back in the temple to serve you all of his days. But at least, but, you know, we kind of laugh at that, but in, in her mind, I've had my child. I can't be accused of being, being a wicked woman or, or unblessed woman. I've had my child. I've given him back to the church. I don't get to raise him, but I've had my child. And, you know, it's quite a prayer. And she says, you know, and no razor will touch his head. Now, we've talked about this before. We talked about this in Gideon. We talked about it in there. This is basically laying down the foundation of the Nazarite vow. She's not talking about alcohol or anything, but she's saying he will not cut his head, his hair will not be cut. Now, it's going to be a long time that he's going to walk around with no, no haircut. Um, and I don't know. How, I don't know how this works out by the time he gets older, but he's going to live a long time. But her vow is no razor is going to touch his head, God. And he's going to be dead. Basically, he's going to be dedicated to you. He is going to be yours. And we see all of this going on that, with this. Verse 12. And it came to pass that as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now, Hannah, she spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved. But her voice was not heard, therefore Eli thought she had been drunk. And Eli said unto her, "How long will you be drunk? Put away this wine from you." And Hannah answered and said, "No, my lord, I am not a woman of, of I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have not drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not your handmaid made for a daughter of Belial. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hereto. Then Eli answered and said to him, Go in peace, and the Lord God of Israel grant you your petition that you have asked him. And she said to them, Let your handmaid find grace in your sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. All right, so here she is praying. And you got to understand... Most of the time when you see prayers, even to this day in Jerusalem, there's this sing-song chant that goes along with the prayers. They don't very often pray silently the way Hannah's praying. Now, she is just pouring out her heart. She's complaining, basically, to God and pouring out her heart. And Eli's looking at her and saying, what's wrong with that woman? Okay, I'm not hearing any words, and her lips are moving. And from his point of view, she may have looked drunk, I guess. I, I've not seen that many drunk people. I can't imagine them laying on the ground, moving their lips and, and crying, but maybe that's true. I don't, I don't see enough of them. They do, okay. So it was a, it was a proper, proper interpretation. Then the next question is, how does Eli know this, uh, know this, uh, this, this thing? Because I would not have known it. Uh, so I'm just talking to all you poor people, you sinners. <laughs> Uh, but he says, you know, how long are you going to be come, come into the temple? Now You're coming into the tabernacle drunk, and how long are you going to continue that way? You know, I think if I had been Eli, I might have been a little softer with her. I might have gone up to her and, you know, woman, what's wrong with you? Or, you, know, you're, you look like you're drunk, you know, but you know, get close to her enough to know that she, there's no smell of alcohol. There's no, there's no slurring of her words, you know. But his immediate thing was to judge her and unfortunately that is done so many times by christians religious leaders they judge people before they get to know them and we see you know and then he goes how long will you be drunk and put away your wine from you and hannah very quickly defends herself no i am not a woman i am a woman that's sorrowful in spirit i have I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. You know, I'm not, I, haven't even, I haven't taken the lightweight stuff and I haven't taken any heavy things. I am just completely sorrowful. I have poured out my soul before the Lord. And I kind of wondered, you know, Eli had never seen somebody pouring out their soul before the Lord at the, at the tabernacle. You know, just so broken in spirit that they were weeping before the Lord. Uh, I've seen this happen at times where people will come and pray you know, and just weep. They can't even say anything. They just weep because they have nothing really to say. They're just so sorrowful. And this is Hannah, so sorrowful. She hasn't had her child. She doesn't know what's wrong. She knows she's being picked on by the rival wife. You know, her husband lovingly is trying to encourage her, and it didn't go over very well with her. And she goes and prays. And I have a feeling this has been a prayer. This is not the first time she's made this prayer. This is the first time we get to read about it. But I don't believe this is probably the first time. They've come up every year and she's wanted a child. I have the feeling this prayer has been going on before. And then she says, don't count your hand, my maiden, as a daughter of Belial, a follower of Satan, a follower of evil. We see this term frequently in the Old Testament. So when you see this word Belial, it's a follower of Satan, somebody who's doing evil um, and, you know, willingly doing it. For out of the abundance of my complaint and greed, I have spoken to God. You know, basically, I've been complaining to God. He's not listening to me, and out of abundance of how my, I poured out my complaint to God. And then Eli answered, and he says, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant you your petition that you have asked him. And there's not a strong, it's definitely going to happen. But he's speaking as the priest, though, in this case. And he's putting a blessing upon her, almost saying that God's going to do this. I mean, he's, he's, he is the priest. He speaks for God. And this is something that when, when you're in a position of authority, pastors, prophets, priests, they're all in that same place. They have to be careful what they say, because they are supposed to be speaking for God if they're doing their job. The priest, when they spoke, were supposed to be speaking for God. And, they, and here we see him saying, may God grant your petition. He didn't even ask her what it was. He has no idea what he's been asking her to have an answer for because she didn't say, I've been praying for a child. She just said, I've been, I'm sorrowful and, and heartbroken and I'm asking God. I'm pouring out my complaint to him. And Hannah in verse 18, this is interesting, let your handmaid didn't find your handmaid find grace in your sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. She took Eli's statement as a fact. She has the faith that because the priest said your prayer is going to be answered, he didn't say it quite that strongly, but what she probably heard was, Your prayer has been answered. Because she leaves and she goes and she enjoys a nice meal. Which kind of indicates to me before she came that she hadn't eaten the rest of the family had. And it says she was no more sad. You know, she took the word that she heard and said, I am going to have my prayer answered. You know, let let Pinua say whatever she wants right now, I'm going to have, I'm going to have this child. And he's going to come back to the, he's going to come back and be dedicated to God. And so we see a total change in her attitude by just a word of encouragement. And I think about this. We as Christians have great opportunity to build up and edify one another. And how many times have you been built up or edified by just a simple word spoken by somebody who's a Christian? And sometimes they don't even know what it is they've said. I've had times when God has had me say something, and I'm going, I don't understand why you're saying this, but you see the smile come across somebody's face when you say it. And I'm going, okay, God, it was what they needed to hear. I have no idea why they needed to hear it. And maybe later on, you'll hear the testimony of how it really changed their life, because it was what they asked God to to hear, or do, or say, or have said, just to prove. And here, Hannah's hearing what she wants to hear. Because it's not very strong, your prayer has been answered. It's, you know, his, his statement is, go in peace. The Lord of God grant you your petition. You know, it's not, it has definitely happened. But she definitely heard, your prayer has been answered. And uh, she leaves, and she's happy. She's on cloud nine, and nothing's going to bring her down. She might even be on cloud 12 or 13. You know, <laughs> nothing's bringing her down at this point. I'm going ha- to have my baby, and it's going to be a boy. <laughs> I'm sure when she got, got pregnant, she did not even pick a second name for, the, for, for a girl. She says, this is, this is my baby boy because that's what I prayed for. And we see her leaving with a whole changed attitude. And I, and I love it. Having that much faith that God has answered because of just a simple statement. How many times do we listen to a message and God will say, this is your message, And we might grab hold of it for a little while, but when we don't get an immediate immediate answer, we kind of forget and let it go by the wayside. Oh, we need to be so careful about these things. God wants us to hold on. And when we've been given a promise, or we feel that we've been given a promise, we need to hold on to that promise no matter how long it takes for it to come true. And sometimes it takes a long time. I knew I was supposed to be a pastor, and it only took Uh, three decades for it to happen all right Uh, now I could have forced it to happen earlier but it wasn't I waited patiently we want to be very careful do we wait patiently and do we hold on to what God says because that patience sometimes is the hardest thing to do you know God I know you said this is going to happen in my life but you know it's been three minutes and it hasn't happened it's been an hour God what's wrong with you it's been a week You know, and we're we're sitting there timing it, you know, God, when when, when are you going to fulfill this? And it usually gets fulfilled about the time we stop bugging God about fulfilling it. Because he says, I want you to rest. I want you to do it. Or worse yet, we try to make it happen in our own strength. And God says, no, it wasn't time yet. And we watch the wreckage of our life when we try to make something happen. We want to be very careful and just rest. Christianity and walking with God is one of the easiest things when we just learn to rest and that doesn't mean we do nothing whatsoever it just means we don't panic we don't try to push it we just let God work it out let him open the doors and make things happen and we see this prayer that Hannah's going to make and it's going to get answered in this case it's going to be answered pretty quick then she's going to get her get her child that she's wanting and she does what she said. She gives him back to God, as we're going to find out. And the sad thing is, so many people make a vow to God, they make a promise to God, and then they forget to keep their part of the promise when God fulfills it. May we never be like that. May we, we always be the ones that keep our word with God and obey him. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to learn, learn about you. Lord, as we just thank you for Hannah's faithfulness to go before you for her needs and that you are going to give her her answer. And we just thank you and ask you to give us wonderful time and bless us as we go about our day. In Jesus' name, amen.